guess that's it. It's like you guys all have headphones that tell you when to sit down. I didn't say a word. In the words of the great St. Benedict, as he passed the holy St. Basil on the road to Milan, good morning. That's all I can <laughs> Yeah, that's, it'll, it'll sink in. I just made that up. I don't know who those people are if they really said that, but surely that was true. Listen, today we're talking about worship. I think if we're honest, worship is one of those Christian-y words people throw around in church settings. But really, do we know what it means? What's the point? What does worship look like? How does it do? And maybe most importantly, what difference does it make? Here at Catalyst, we have seven footprints. These are seven things, these seven things, that make us who we are. It's our DNA. If you're new here and wondering what we're about, I encourage you to, to go online and check these out. These are the seven things that really uh, inform the decisions we make and the postures we take. One of our footprints is to become a church that is known for engaging the Lord in worship and in prayer. This footprint is such a big deal that actually Pastor Rolland, um, whose pulpit I am keeping warm, decided, actually, he, he made a decision, and he, he, he takes time, I don't know, you know if you guys want to know how the sausage is made or not, but he takes time um, really quarterly about and sits and prays and gets away and thinks about the big picture and where we should go. He leads prophetically in that way and sets up the talks, and then if someone like me fills in, we're coached on, on which way the church is going on these things, and it's really important. And Rollin decided that, that, that the thing we needed to talk about on our first day of 2020, the first Sunday, the thing to set the tone for the rest of the year is this footprint of worship. It's that big a deal. And personally, I'm convicted that the success of our church in impacting our community hinges on our ability to engage the Lord in worship. We want to grow people of worship who build a culture of worship that transforms our community. That's it. But what do we mean? It's that easy, right? But what do we mean? And that's what today's sermon is all about. We're going to dig into scripture this morning, and in particular, we're going to look at two stories about Jesus. He's a big deal in the Bible. If you haven't started the app yet, you'll get to him pretty quickly. Uh, he's, he's a big deal. Uh, Two stories about Jesus and two of his best friends, Mary and Martha. Two of his best friends, Mary and Martha. Now, if you haven't spent a lot of time around the church, you might not have, have heard about these, and that's fine. Welcome, by the way. If you have, you've probably heard each of these stories, but I bet you've never heard them told together, and I think it's very important today that we do so. Rarely do we tell them together but today we're going to do just that. And after we've looked at the stories in context of one another, now one's from Luke and one's from John, so you wouldn't read them back to back, but, but actually when you read them together, you start to see something coming out, and I think it tells us a great deal about worship. Three things in particular, I think, and not just because preachers like threes, but because literally I found three things I thought, you know what, this is what worship is all about. Now if you're looking for a how-to, on worship, I suggest YouTube or something like that. I'm not going to, to tell you how to stand or, or how to uh, sing. Um, some of you got that figured out. Some of you do not got that figured out. Uh, 
but no 30-minute sermon's gonna, gonna fix that. But listen, we are gonna talk about what worship is, and, and I think as, as this story is told, as these stories are told, and, and, and the points emerge, we start to see some profound things about worship. So let's get started. Story one. Story one comes from Luke chapter 10, and it's short enough that I think I'm going to read it to you. I'll be quite honest and tell you, I don't even remember what, what translation I ended up picking, but uh, who knows? Here we go. It's on the screen. That should help. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their journey, they came to a village where a woman, named, uh, where a woman welcomed Jesus into her home. Her name was Martha, and she had a sister named Mary. Mary sat down attentively before the master, absorbing every revelation he shared. But Martha became exasperated by finishing the numerous household chores in preparation for her guests. So she interrupted Jesus and said, Lord, don't you think it's unfair that my sister left me to do all the work by myself? You should tell her to get up and help me. Awkward moment for everyone, I'm sure. You probably had a few of these in the last few weeks. Now the Lord answered her, Martha, my beloved Martha, why are you so upset and troubled? Pulled away by all these many distractions? Are they really that important? Are they really that important? Mary had discovered, has discovered the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted, and I will not take that privilege from her. Pretty simple story. Jesus visits a village, has dinner with two women. One of them sits and talks to them while the other goes about preparing the meal. The one doing the work gets mad at the one not doing the work, no surprise, and asks an authority figure to do something about it. Holiday awkwardness ensues, and that's it, right? But it's, it's really not as simple as that. I'm going to dig in just a little bit more today. Now, the way this story begins in Luke leaves out a little bit of important context. Jesus wasn't just stumbling along on his, uh, on his teaching journey and happened by coincidence to end up at this house with Mary and Martha. It wasn't like, you know, the Wendy's I hit on the way to my, my holiday in West Virginia, I, just, I did just rock up there, and, and I wish I hadn't afterwards, but, but this is not what happened with Jesus. He knew these people. These were his friends. We know that from other scriptures. And they happened to live near Jerusalem, near Jerusalem in a village called Bethany. And since both of the stories today are set in Bethany with these two characters, I want to tell you a little bit more about it. Now, it seems that whenever Jesus would visit Jerusalem to go to the temple, and that was a big deal for a Jewish person at this time, this is where he stayed. Bethany, this is his home base. It was perfect because it was just around a hill from the big city, about a mile and a half walk. Huge deal for us. Sometimes we drive that uh, for no good reason. Um, I'll be honest with you, I was at Panera last night and I drove to Walmart. You know what I'm talking about. That's terrible. (laughs) Jesus wouldn't. He's better than me. He'd have walked to Walmart or Target. But uh, Bethany was perfect. It was a mile and a half around the hill, and Jesus had friends there. Now, another important piece of context about Bethany. The word Bethany, actually, in the original language, means house of the poor or house of the afflicted. House of the poor, house of the afflicted. These are people who couldn't afford the rent in Jerusalem. These are people who got close but couldn't go all the way. 
Some of these people we know were sick people, desperate people from all around Israel who wanted a touch from God, who needed a touch from God, needed a favor from God or from an official in the city. And this is as close as they got. Some of them would have walked hundreds of miles and made it to Bethany and no further. There were houses there to take care of the sick people because there's nowhere else in Jerusalem for that. They didn't want those people there, right? Bethany is the place Jerusalem puts the people they don't want, put them on buses, send them out to Bethany, drop them off. That's where they are. Many of the people in Bethany would have walked into town each day looking for something good, maybe some money from a tourist, maybe a blessing from a priest. But at the end of the night, they'd stumble back out to Bethany and lay down there to sleep. I think it's pretty cool, actually, that when Jesus visited the big city, this is where he stayed. I think it's even cooler that when Jesus knew he had seven days left to live, he did not rent out a room at the JW Marriott. He went to Bethany and lived among his ragtag friends there. That's the God we get excited about. So when Luke says, uh, I should say this, when Luke says it was a village, what he's talking about is, is Bethany. Jesus is coming to stay with friends. And that means the women of the house, well, they've got work to do. Now, if we're really going to catch what's going on in the passage, we need to take a step back from our contemporary context, our modern culture, to try to get a sense for what is going on in this culture. Whatever gender roles might look like in your homes or in our larger community, in Bible times, these were very strictly defined. When it, when it came to being a host, hosting a guest, men would provide the conversation, ideas and stories to fill the guest's mind, okay? But the woman of the house or the women of the house were to provide for the guest's person. They would make the setting hospitable. They would provide the things necessary to refresh a visitor's body. This cultural value is important to get. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that the ideal wife in Proverbs 31 is praised for doing things? That's their cultural value. It's the chief cultural value for a woman of that time. Okay? So when Luke says that Martha was, quote, finishing the numerous household chores and preparation for her guests, unquote, this wasn't little stuff. Not at all. This was centrally important to the chief value of their culture, and that is hospitality. Centrally important. Hosts back then didn't just tidy up and whip up a meal. The honor of the guests depended on the host taking great care and joy and preparing every little thing for their visitor. And this goes for the men and the women. This was the chief cultural value, this hospitality. Both had a role, and it was important for both. They would clean the house not so that they would look good, and not so that like, they would look like they had it together. You know what I'm talking about. If you know someone's coming, you see their car, you run as fast as you can for the bathroom. Maybe it's the bachelor, and you throw everything out of there, and you just kind of clean up a little. It's not to look good themselves, but as a way of showing respect and care for their visitor. Every aspect of preparing the meal was done with the guest in mind. Preparing a house for a guest was actually seen as a privilege, and it put Mary and Martha, I want you to hear this, it put Mary and Martha in a place of power and an agency in a culture that didn't have any other avenues for that for women. 
this was their way to shape local and even regional politics and business. It's not a throwaway thing. This is not icing on the cake. This is central to the way business got done. This is central to the way politics got done. This was real stuff, big stuff. The point we get from this is that Martha is actually doing right in our story. She's right. I guess I'll defend Martha once and for all. She's right. This is not a story, though, of right and wrong or good and bad. Actually, it's a story that highlights the difference between good and, as we professors say, gooder. Sometimes good things get in the way of the great. Sometimes good things get in the way of the great. This is what Jesus is getting at when he asks Martha if all the tasks she's doing are really that important. He doesn't ever say these things aren't important, Martha. Stop. Are they that important? Well, as important as what? As important as what? Hospitality was one of the most important values in the culture. When you read carefully, you see that Jesus isn't saying that hospitality is unimportant. What he's saying is it's not that important. Not as important as God himself. It's not. Man, another sermon for another day. But what cultural values do we hold dear on the left or the right that while good are not as important as God himself? And this reveals a powerful central truth about worship. Worship is about putting first things first. First things first. Mary said no to a good thing. Her responsibility and her role her privilege to spend time with the master. And that's what worship is. It's about encountering Jesus up close and personal, right in the middle of the ups and downs of life. Now, we're going to come back to this, but now I want to pivot to our second story. And this one happens later. We know that much. Jesus is away from his, with his disciples doing ministry around the region, and he hears that a good friend of his, Lazarus, who's actually the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus is sick. And actually, he's so sick, he's on his deathbed. And so Jesus and his disciples, they wrap up what they're doing, and they start heading back to Bethany, most likely for a funeral. But Jesus is about to see what he can do. When they finally get to the out, by the way, this is second home. He's going home. Second home. When he gets to the outskirts of the city, guess what? It's Martha, who again fulfills her duty, the right thing, again and again. Man, Martha's right. Put that on a t-shirt, stitch it on a pillow, and and see what kind of love you get from people. Martha was right. You want many friends. But she's the one that greets Jesus. She performed the task of the host by greeting Jesus as he comes to the gates of the city. Most likely, she brought him cool water, right? She greeted him there. And this is what she says. Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Now, it almost looks like she's got some faith here that Jesus is going to do something big. But we find out through the rest of the story, she's got a different thing in mind. What she's got in mind, quite simply, is religion. It's theology. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, 
Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. The Greek there, I love it. It says, will never die forever. Will never die forever. Love that. That's an album title if ever there was one. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who came into the world from God. I want you to pay attention to that word believed. Okay? Then she returned to Mary. Now, when she found Mary, Martha told her that Jesus had arrived. And Mary immediately left the place she was mourning. Lazarus had died. They're mourning his death. She left the place he died to come greet Jesus out at the gate to meet him there. Now, I've always thought it weird that Jesus stayed at the gate. It doesn't make much sense. He's already been greeted by the host of the family. Lazarus is dead, by the way. Remember, in that culture, a man would have performed the, the, the conversation as the host. But when the eldest man has died, if the next eldest person is a female, it's her job to do the talking. It's her job to do the conversation. So the task of the host for the family has been done. There's no reason why Jesus waits except this. I believe he wants to highlight something profound. Again, a juxtaposition for us to see. And that's actually highlighted because not only is the setting the same, so is the script. When Mary comes to the gate, do you know she says the exact same thing to Jesus? The exact same thing. The Greek's the exact same. And this is what she says. You know it by now. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been there, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Would not have died. Mary fell at Jesus' feet and sobbed. She came undone. There is real emotion here, raw honesty. But think about it. Think about it. Where have we seen this before? Where have we seen this before? Mary choosing vulnerability at the feet of Jesus over everything else. This is a place she has been before, and this is a relationship Jesus knows. The truth is, Martha met Jesus. Martha met Jesus, but Mary encountered him. Martha went straight for the safety of religion and theology. Mary went straight for the heart. Both women confronted Jesus with a statement, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And you know, the first time Jesus responded, he took a religious approach, didn't he? He knew where Martha was coming from, and he responded in the same way she engaged him. And I think there's an important takeaway here. The way we engage Jesus will almost always determine the nature of our encounter. I'm going to say that again. The way we engage Jesus will almost always determine the nature of our encounter. This is something I've had to learn from personal experience and something that I, I continue to be challenged by. If we approach him at arm's length, he'll honor our posture of distance. We get mad about that, but you know he honors you? He treats you like grown people. If you hold him at arm's length, he will honor your intention, and you'll get what you ask for. 
And the very thing your heart truly desires will remain forever out of your reach. It's tragic to me, and we'll come back to this, that for so many people, that's precisely what worship has become. Cold, sterile, and lifeless. Of course, the opposite is true. When you approach Jesus with your whole heart, he will respond in kind. Look at the text. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and saw the other people wailing about her, the Bible says a deep anger welled up inside of them, and he was deeply troubled. Now listen, this is very, very important. Most of our translations in the English don't do this justice at all. There are very few times when I just, I can't help but, but be moved by, by, well, I'm lying, I love words. But there, there, no, this may be my, most, my favorite word in the entire Bible. Entire word, favorite word in the entire Bible. Most translations say that a deep anger welled up within him or that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit. But the Greek word here is actually very precise and it is very, just incredibly powerful. The word here literally refers, it's, it comes from the equestrian world. It refers to a horse snorting, it means to snort through a bridle. That's exactly what the text says. Now, how do you translate that for, for normal people who ride, drive cars? I don't know. But I want to tell you, it means that Jesus snorted, his nostrils flared, he shook his head, and he was angry. Angry. This is frustration and power all in one motion. In fact, this is the exact same word that shows up in the Greek poet Aeschylus' account of a hero charging an enemy gate during an ancient battle. I love this. This, is, this isn't the Bible, but it, it speaks to the truth of the Bible. Aeschylus says, He, the hero, whirls his horses as they snort through their bridles, eager to fall against the gate. That word snort is the exact word used by John in this passage. Jesus reared up like a horse. No, not to my, not to my friends. The point is that Jesus wasn't just stirred up. He was, wasn't just troubled to his core. He shook his head. He flared his nostrils. And with a mixture of frustration and power, he raged against the enemy. And then seeing the pain that his enemy death had caused, the Bible says, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That's not the end of the story. If you read on, you find that Jesus, like the war horse in Aeschylus, charges the enemy head on. But instead of approaching the gates to an enemy city, he approaches the entrance to a tomb. After praying, Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this. Man, that's an important verse. The sisters got their brother back, and Mary's weeping was replaced with dancing. All right, what's all this got to do with worship? In the time we have left, I want to highlight three things that I think jump from the text when you know what's going on. The first is this. Worship is quite simply about encountering Jesus, encountering, engaging Jesus. Mary sat at Jesus' feet in our first story, and in our second, when her life was coming apart at the seams, she fell down at his feet again. That's encounter. This is the root of worship. 
It is encountering God without pretense, without agenda. We don't worship so that something happens. We don't worship so that we feel better about ourselves. We don't even worship because we want Jesus to do something for us. No, we worship simply because the presence is the point. The presence is the point. Worship is about engaging with. It's about spending time with the God who actually wants to spend time with us. Do you know he doesn't just love you? That's, everybody says that. What will really shake you up is when you know and realize that he likes you. Even you, even me. Let's talk about church for a second. When you come here, what do you come for? Maybe you've never thought much about it. That's okay. But let's really think about it for a second. Why not sleep in, man? Why not hit the gym? Why not sip some coffee and catch up on the news? Why come? What are we here for? I want to suggest that we come for one thing, and it's worship. One thing. This isn't about us telling God all the great things that he already knows about himself. God is not some kind of preoccupied narcissist. He does not need you to tell him what he already knows. That's not worship. And if people tell you that, I'm sorry. We do that too much in the church. That's a problem. He doesn't need our praise. Do you know that the Bible suggests that God actually likes us? He wants us to put down all the other important things we're doing and spend time with him. He wants to give us the perspective we need to go back out and enjoy the things he's given us. That's exactly the point of worship. It's coming home. It's saying yes to engaging God, up close, up personal, just like Mary did. Now, we're not quite as lucky as Mary was, right? Her goal was encountering God, and she got to do it by actually sitting down in her living room. I do that quite frequently, and God never shows up. But even though we don't have it quite that easy, we do have the same access, the same access. Coming to church is an exercise and encounter. And it begins when you're greeted outside. Those volunteers you met outside today are actually extending the kindness and the compassion of Jesus himself to us. Did you know that? Jesus isn't here to welcome you, to give you that, that holy high five and welcome you to have a seat, right? To point you to the coffee. He's not, except that he is. In and through Lisa Davis's volunteers. Thank you, greeters, seriously, for being Jesus in your welcome this morning. And then we sing, right? And this is a way to put our bodies and our spirits in connection and encounter with Jesus. That's why we sing. It's one of the few things we do, and there's, there is science behind this, trust me, but I'm going to spare you this morning. One of the few things we do that unites our bodies our souls, and our minds into one task, into one task. It's elemental. Now, some of you don't like the singing. Some of you hate to sing. Some of you don't sound all that good. It's all right. We don't up here all the time either. I, you know, the fact is, that's not the point. It's not the point. You got to get over that. You got to, for your sake. Even if you can't carry a tune in the bucket, 
The act of your singing unites your body, your soul, and your mind for the purpose of encountering the God of the universe. Do not deprive yourself of the chance on Sundays just because you aren't a professional singer. Take a risk. We get up close and personal with God when we sing. And then worship continues through the preaching. Jesus sat with Mary and shared with her important things about life. Through our pastor, Rollin, we encounter Jesus in a similar way. This man has spent more time with the master than I've been alive. And so when the preaching starts, something profound begins to happen. It isn't just Rollin telling us good things. Jesus himself comes and ministers to us through him. And then there's the conversations on the way out the door. Those aren't nothing. Jesus meeting us in a question, in an encouragement. This is your way to minister Jesus to other people. Pray for someone. This is important stuff. What would it look like if we begin coming to Catalyst expecting to actually encounter Jesus from the moment we step out the door of our car to the moment we say goodbye and throw our coffee away? What if we begin 2020 with that goal in mind, making every Sunday an opportunity to encounter God rather than a task performing a service to him? He doesn't need your service. In the words of the great Irish poets, you too, quit helping God across the street like a little old lady. I believe this would change Pendleton. It would set our community on edge. It would heal our division. It could bring much-needed comfort to the lonely and poor. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want? All right, number two. Worship needs to be our one big thing, our one big thing. Jesus was clear with Martha, there's only room for one big thing. Now, Jesus said this over and over in the Bible, and he seems to be saying it to Martha here. The one big thing is following him. It's following him. We only have room for one thing. As an aside, and I'll, I'll be quick on this, but we, we use language so funny. I always tell people that I need to get my priorities in order. Do you know that priority, the very meaning of the word is that which is prior. You can't have more than one priority. What's wrong with us? We lose the meaning of the word when we use it in the plural. You have one priority, one primary thing. The one thing you put first, there's only room for it. You can't have a priority. You can have the priority. That's it. And that is following him. Now, many of you have made commitments to Christ. You've decided to believe in him and his power to save you from your old lives, save you from yourselves, but this is only the first step. Belief is the beginning. If you spend any time around Catalyst, you know that we put a ton of emphasis on discipleship. We've got discipleship groups. We've got small groups. We do this because... It is belief is not the goal or the finish line for Christians. Belief is the beginning. It's the starting line. Too often churches are set up to get people to believe things about Jesus or to believe in Jesus. But I want to be really controversial here, but I, I got to say it. I believe this grieves, I believe this grieves the heart of God, the very heart of God. Jesus did not say, go and make believers of all nations. He said, go and make disciples. Look at John 11. Martha believed in Jesus. I ask you to remember that word. And yet completely missed the point or 
let me hit closer to home or even more hard. Consider this, the Bible says that even the demons believe in Jesus. That's your goal? Lord, forgive us. This world does not need more believers. This world needs more disciples. Let's go. How do you do that? How do you become a disciple? Well, that's another talk for another day, and some of you are thinking, all right, move on now. But let me just say, you just spend time with that person. That's what Mary's doing. You spend time with that person. You want to be a disciple of Chip and Joanna? Just get their magazine and watch their show. I promise you, before you know it, your house will look like a, a weird mix between Cracker Barrel and Ikea. It will happen. <laughs> they didn't like that, apparently. <laughs> Too close to home, right? But the principle is simple. You become who you follow. You become who you follow. Point three, and then we'll land this plane. Worship moves the very heart of God. Worship moves the very heart of God. When you read our two stories separately, this doesn't come out. We miss something important. When Mary was sitting and engaging with Jesus in her home, instead of doing the good things she could have been doing, something profound was happening. A relationship was beginning to take root. She was moving past belief and into discipleship. She was moving past religion and into relationship. Religion never saved anyone. Religion never saved anyone. Religion never saved anyone. All the theology or wise teaching in the world has never brought a dead man back to life. Neither can it save you from the things of this broken world. Religion by itself is impotent. It has no real power. But this is where, I just want to say, this is where Christianity is so sweet, right? This is where it has something to offer. The Buddha left us with a way of truth. Socrates started a school to prepare young men in living the good life. Muhammad left the Quran. All of these things have good things in them, some of them powerful, but none of them powerful enough to bring a dead man to life. None. Some people will tell you that Jesus is great for giving humanity a new and better way to view the world, a better truth. But these people have paid no attention to what Jesus himself actually said. Jesus said this. Well, he didn't say, this is the truth. This is the truth. No, he said, I am the truth. I am the truth. That's the thing that sets Christianity apart from the other options. It's a very different thing. At the center of Christianity is not a principle, it's a person. It's a person. And you do not have relationship with principles, but you do with people. Religion never saved anyone. Worship is about a person, though. The biggest thing we learn from our stories today is that worship, genuine engagement with Jesus, moves the very heart of God moves the very heart of God. The engagement of Jesus by Mary in our first story paved the way for the moving of the heart of God, the, the, the flaring of the nostrils that brought a dead man back to life. Worship team, you guys want to come on up? We'll get some play in here. I'll let you guys actually do some of the worship. Some of you need to know that God himself is angry about how you've been treated this year. 
Some of you need to know that God is angry about what this world has done to you or the people dear to you. His nostrils are his head is shaking, he is snorting through the bridle. And he's ready, he's waiting for you to fall at his feet without pretense and simply engage with him. Let me be bold enough to say one more thing. Some of you need to see dead things come back to life. All of us have a dead part of us. Some of us need to see, all of us need to see dead things come back to life. The power comes from the presence. There is no power without the presence. And that begins with spending time at the feet of Jesus. We don't do this stuff up here uh, to attract people. We don't do this stuff up here to make pretty sounds. We don't do this stuff up here because we like to play music. There are karaoke bars that would take us, I'm sure. The fact is, what we're after is engaging the presence of God for the sake of the power to transform your lives, our lives, but more importantly, honestly, a jacked up area. I live in Anderson. I'm in trouble. We need power, and that begins with the presence. Why don't you stand? And just today, um, if you don't mind, uh, maybe if you feel comfortable, do something with me. Just, just stick your hands out. Let's just ask, stand, and, and Lord, we're going to pray, and then we're going to just engage God in worship, whatever that looks like to you. Let's just, let's just do that. Father, we, we hold our hands out, Lord, expectant. Lord, we repent. We apologize, Father, for taking time with you so lightly, Lord. We, uh, um, we know that you don't want all the things that we're giving you. so often give you, Father, but what you want is just our time, our hearts, Lord, our, our, our all. You don't want any one thing, but you want our everything, Father. And so even now, Lord, I pray for the, the folks in this room, each person, Father, that you, your Holy Spirit would engage them this morning and help them love you more. That love for Jesus would begin to abound in this room, would begin to pour into this room. That, that love for Jesus that folks didn't know they even had would begin to increase, Lord, here at the start of 2020. We ask these things in your name, Father, and we hung, we're hungry for more of what you have, not just for us, but for those around us. Lord, please bring dead things back to life.